Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us live on air, get your opera voice heard, 847 847- 866-9687. What's your hot take on what we were talking about? 847-866-WNUR. All right, tonight, creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with costume designer Mariam Bari. Find out how the French biologist went from academia to being Haymarket Opera Company's secret weapon. But first, in Chalk Talk, we take you back, way back. We'll listen to some old-school recordings made around the turn of the century using Thomas Edison's wax cylinder equipment and compare those recordings to today's opera singers using that same old-fangled technology. And around 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in opera land and our hot takes on those stories Got a great show for you tonight. Thanks for hanging out with us. And thank you, Matt Cummings, for coming back on the show. Good to be back. It feels like I've been gone forever. Oh, man. It was just a week. I know, but it's been a long week. Well, it's summer now. You don't. You may not know this. <laughs> well, this is what Tobias <laughs> said, was that we were going to skip spring and just go straight to summer. And, and we did. How about you, Weston? Are you all sweaty now that it's summer? I am sweaty, and I've oh. realized that the bugs have all come back, and it's really gross. <laughs> up with those bugs? Bugs and sweats and, all right. I, I mean, you know, winter was, was, I mean, this is a nice break from winter, I suppose. We'll, we'll be back before we know it. That's true. Probably like three days from now, and it'll be snowing again. Always a mystery. <laughs> that good old Midwest weather. We talked about uh, poker very briefly, I think it was two weeks ago, where not a lot of sports happening right now, not at least in Chicago. Cubs no, no. need to get going. Bulls are out. Blackhawks are out. And uh, a friend of mine in the opera business contacted me, and he said, so wait, so where is the underground opera fan only <laughs> poker game in Chicago. And I was like, I, well I don't think there is one. <laughs> well let me let me tell you something, George. If 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 it if it if it does exist, that is one low stakes poker game. <laughs> and if it doesn't exist, we are starting it. Yeah. Because it the great. house yeah. always wins. The house always wins, exactly. <laughs> Put it straight into the opera box score coffers. Uh, that would be a total blast. 
I, I would be. I feel like I, I could dress up in like one of the like, like the little like uh, you know dealer outfits, you know, sort of the bell hoppy kind of things. Green and I could, visor. I can That's rough people up. <gasps> the green visor. I forgot about the visors. Yeah, yeah. We're, that is an essential ha- fashion accessory. I'm gonna have to practice counting cards before we get it going. So give me a couple <laughs> weeks to learn how to do that. <laughs> He's a musician. He can't count. Let's talk some opera. Chart talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to. Great show for you tonight. A couple weeks ago, there's an article in the New York Times, and the link to that is on our website, operaboxscore.com. In the article, it uh, followed tenor Peter Bachala and soprano Susanna Phillips. They had this fantasy to record some arias using early 20th century technology and conditions. It's a long story. The Met Opera's archivist talked to the curator at the uh, Performing Arts Library in New York City, and then they contacted someone at the Thomas Edison National Historical Park. Then that guy contacted somebody here in Illinois who makes these wax cylinders, which are used, uh, were used to record these early singers, and it's it's what we have. It's the only thing we really have now as to what they sounded like, and it's an imperfect science, definitely. To we say wanna, the least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we want to kind of take you through what the technology was on that. We're going to listen to some recordings, and we're going to talk about artistically what we're hearing, but uh, what do you say, boys? Should we just start with uh, kind of the old and the new here? What are yeah, we going to be listening yeah. to? Yeah, so this is uh, Piotr Bachala and Susanna Phillips. Uh, they're both going to sing a little, uh, a little chunk of an aria each, and you'll hear it just... Uh, with the Mets, you know, microphone they just had in the room, and then you'll hear a recording also in the same room of the uh, of the playback on an old wax record, a uh, wax cylinder playback, and it's really interesting. Recordings from the New York Times uh, article, which is on our website, Opera Box Score. Kind of with her that it's amazing that someone figured out how to do this in the first it place. It must have blown people's minds. <laughs> it did. It's it's kind of amazing. Uh, uh, I mean, it, the the phonograph, uh, as we're as we're calling it, uh, is was invented in 1877. 
uh, by the Internet's least favorite inventor, Thomas Edison. Um, and uh, he uh, – <laughs> the Internet hates him. This is something the youth know. I'm hip with the memes. Um, Go on. <laughs> Put it on Twitter. It was originally going to be a, uh, a cylinder – it was originally a cylinder with some tin foil and it etched into the tin foil. Uh, and then a different company actually took it and uh, transferred it to wax. And then eventually the wax cylinders were rounded out into a record. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of a brilliantly simple device. There's no – there's not necessarily any electronic parts involved, which is what I find so fascinating about it. Um, er, they figured out that they could etch sound into things uh, several decades before Edison, um, but they had no way to play it back. It was just to see what the waveforms looked like. You know, you know if you've ever seen uh, – if you've ever done any audio editing or anything like that, you can see it all represented. Or if you, know, you it, took trigonometry in high school, or you, you see took those <laughs> sine waves. <laughs> some Take of us, math, baby. Some of us don't know math, Matt. You, you took the ACT, <laughs> didn't you? I was on an SAT, Northeast. Come on, George from Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's oh true. my anyway. goodness! Yeah, yeah. So it, it was all perfect, right? Or were there any problems? Absolutely, there were no downsides. <laughs> As you could hear, perfect re- sound reproduction. No, uh, well, there there are a couple of problems with it. I'm. First of all, because there are no electronic parts, it is all purely mechanical. So you're tied into physical limitations within the device itself. For example, um, well, well, when you're singing, what you're doing is you're singing into a horn, and there's a diaphragm that vibrates with these sound waves. And, the, and that, that diaphragm moves the needle, which scratches onto the wax record. And if you see the video on, on our website, uh, you can see the, uh, in the, the recording process, the guy is actually actually like hunched over the wax cylinder and like brushing off and blowing off uh, excess wax as it goes along. It's a very low tech process, but essentially playback is the same thing, but in reverse you, you put it on a different machine um, and uh, the needle um, vibrates according to those sound waves and then it vibrates the diaphragm. And then, you know, the horn comes, it comes out and, you know, you have a theoretically uh, a perfect sound reproduction but it doesn't quite work that way and there's a couple of reasons why uh first uh the volume obviously is a problem because you know you're limited by the size of the echo chamber that's being used the horn that's being used to uh project the sound so you in order to have you know uh, something that's the correct volume you need a massive massive horn which is which is just infeasible in most circumstances Second, the uh, playback requires the use of heavy steel needles, uh, both on the, uh, uh, particularly on the early records, uh, not just the uh, wax cylinders. And basically, every time it goes around, because it's so heavy, because it has to be, it has to be heavy to produce those mechanical vibrations that are heard on that scale. Um, it wears down the record. So every single time you hear one of these old recordings, it will never sound that good again, which is kind of a scary thought. Wow, so these recordings <laughs> are just slowly kind of vanishing yeah. in people's parlors. And that's to say nothing of, you know, what decades and decades of heat, humidity. Getting them warped yeah, and, worn down and scratched. And there's also the problem with the fact that the human voice is not a simple sine wave. Right. There are so many overtones that it can't possibly capture all of them. And mm-hmm. so when you hear us, it, it's really apparent with Susanna Phillips because uh, with just the way the range in which she's singing, you lose a lot of the warmth. You lose a lot of the low support underneath her sound. That would that's what makes it sound human. And so you kind of get this this tinny sound that's really far away. It sounds kind of hollow. You don't get the 
it, you don't get the humanity in it. Right. And there's and uh, then there's also the problem of because everything's just being kind of turned back by a hand crank, essentially like a, you know, a music box motor in there, um, you get speed variations that you can't control. So you'll get these weird little pitch shifts that aren't in the original what's being sung. And uh, and this this was a problem that persisted really until uh, electronics started coming and you could regulate those speeds more precisely. You could use electronic amplification and you could remove some of the, the sounds that are picked up by deeper grooves and you could add in some higher ones. You can amplify those. Uh, and so that was kind of how we ended up with the modern vinyl record. Um, but for you double hipsters like me who have your phonograph that's pre-vinyl. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a phonograph. Vinyl's I, 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 I absolutely, a liar. I promise I have a phonograph. Take Taking it all the way back to the liar now. Exactly. <laughs> it's Opera Box Score on WNUR. We're taking it old school. We're looking at ancient early 20th century recordings, looking at the science behind that. Let's look at the artistic side. Matt, you've got some clips that you wanted to share. What do you want to start yeah, with? Yeah, so what's really interesting about what we heard is that when we, when we listen to these clips coming up now, you have to realize that we're listening blind. We don't have the comparison of mm-hmm. modern mm-hmm. audio to compare it to. So uh, when we listen to Bachawa and Phillips, you can kind of reverse engineer it based on what you know they people sound like in real life so that's important to keep in mind is that they didn't really sound like this uh and let's we'll start with our with our man enrico caruso who was really the first recording star people t- they they there's a there are famous lines about how the gramophone made him famous and he made the gramophone famous mm-hmm, because he had a mm-hmm. voice that recorded well he he sounds less in a dark room at the end of a hallway than some of the other people who were singing at the same time. And what's him. he singing on this selection? This is a recording from, I want to say, 1904 of Vestila Juba from Pagliacci. <laughs> criticism of that today obviously is that he's like woefully pitchy right he's flat and sharp and that's part of what Winston was talking about that there there's really no way to control for pitch in the same way right and this would be especially the case because this would be this would not be a wax cylinder uh, which had a little bit more pitch control actually than record players because it was all the even spacing uh, on the cylinder whereas it, it, the circumference of the re- record changes as you go along. The technical part aside, Matt, what do you hear just in the musicianship of a recording like that? What really stands out to me about that recording is how individual his phrasing is. I feel like a lot of the people who s- have sung this since then are kind of doing an imitation of how much he uses rubato. 
and the and rubato it mean it literally means like to rob something to take something away and it's mm. referring to time in that you take time and expand and then you have to give it back and a lot of singers today are really good at taking time and not so good at giving it back. <laughs> and he, he, there are places where you speed up. And there are places where he really milks the big notes, and it is it, that. And that is that. That's a big part of what makes phrasing, which is something we've kind of tried to talk about on our Forstovsky show. In that, it, and it's a hard thing to put your finger on because it's about how you take these individual notes and make them into a sentence. And he, that, there was definitely a sentence there. You, Absolutely. <laughs> a couple sentences. Up and down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, give us another one, Matt. What's, what's something else that you really would want to listen to uh, even from this 100 years ago? Let's take a listen at uh, Dame Nellie Melba wanna, singing uh, a, a select, just the very beginning of Porgio Amor from Le Noce di Figaro. So funny to hear that number done just with a piano. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because it was expensive to record these. They usually only got one take. It's basically like they're singing it live and with just a piano in the room. And the interesting thing about the piano is you can kind of reverse engineer how much – or you, you get an idea of how much the sound is limited because we know what a piano sounds like. Right. And it does not sound like that. <laughs> so think about how mon- how much is lost in terms of the sound quality of that, and and the voice I would wager a guess is probably even more so. Yeah, it, it is really interesting to hear um, that sort of scaled down thing, which we're not as used to as modern listeners. Uh, we we complain about not having uh, money for recordings nowadays, but it's it's not just the money is, uh, issue. There's also a technical aspect to it as well, because if uh, when you're recording something in this era, you're literally singing into a little a little cone you know maybe uh, <laughs> at how, most a foot and a half in diameter and you how can't many crowd an orchestra in front of that right and how many steps you are away from the cone will make a big difference in terms mm-hmm. of what kind mm-hmm. of sound you get in terms of what it'll uh in terms of the tone in terms of the volume in terms of the quality of it and uh Melba was one of the most famous sopranos, if not the most famous soprano, when she was singing. And she, w- everyone talked about how full and rich and pure her tone was. Mm-hmm. And you can't really hear the full fullness, and you can't really hear the richness. But I think you can hear the purity. And you can hear how the line really moves from one note to the other in that smooth, legato way. That comes through. That kind of phrasing comes through and that's why these recordings can be valuable for young musicians and historians as well Ex- absolutely yeah. she also got her own dessert right? uh, she did a peach melba, peach melba and melba toast delicious. 
and she, Melba Toast. I didn't they, know that was the same. Two, that makes both sense. after Nellie Melba. She, people just wanted to make desserts and for And she got to, Kira Takanawa to play her on Downton Abbey for all you young That's kids the, out there who love PBS. <laughs> <laughs> we got time for one more clip, Matt. What do you want to listen to? Let's listen to one that has an orchestra because uh, when when you get a couple a little a couple years later you get uh, Nelly Melba's big rival who is Louisa Tetrazzini and yes that that dish is also named after her. <laughs> they, oh, the pasta. Yeah, the pasta <laughs> dish is also named. I after thought Zabaro just made that up. No, it's a real <laughs> thing. Uh, this is the very beginning of uh, Caronome from Rigoletto. like a major difference between that and the other two. It's I the mean, hi-fi there's, there's, system right there. Yeah, there's no hiss in the background. Yeah. And I think that might have been digitally removed. It, it, it ah, most likely was. Yeah, okay. But okay. Uh, what you can't, and again, you can't really tell necessarily what the tone would have sounded like, but you can hear that there's more than one register in her voice. Yeah, exactly. And that was a big thing that, they, that people wrote about at the time, is that Nellie Melba's voice was absolutely pure, seamless from top to bottom. And mm-hmm. Tetrazzini was famous for having a really exciting low register and a really exciting high register. And in the middle was kind of wonky. And you can hear those big shifts. And it would be really interesting to hear if it... to to be able to put actual human sounds like that. Yeah, I think it would be uh, fascinating. Probably not possible. Not Probably not with our current technology anyway. But I think one thing that really interests me uh, is that if you're talking about a lot of these turn-of-the-century singers, the singing styles were different from the way people sing today. Absolutely. And so when you're listening to these... How much of it is the recording? How much of it is their personal thing? How much is the techniques being different? It's all about synthesizing all of this huge amount of information and just kind of hoping it kind of gets somewhere. And a lot of these were from before the era of the big conductor. They were from before mm-hmm. Toscanini mm-hmm. rose to prominence and other uh, uh, Mahler would have worked with some of these singers probably, oh, but not but not Bruno Walter or a lot of those other the the people who came later who really instilled a lot more discipline if we'll say <laughs> politely in the singers if you listen to some of the rain uh, in a little some of those long bel canto scenes once they were able to record more than two minutes at a time there are high notes everywhere they put in cadenzas in the middle of words they it, uh there's there's a recording of tetrazzini singing saper voreste where she turns into the queen of the night in the middle of it and it's just ridiculous <laughs> because she could and people would buy it people were interested in hearing it and I don't know if that's what they would have done live, but 
you oh, know. absolutely, they would have. It was a uh, creative consultant, Oliver Camacho, sent us this thing. What a shame he couldn't be here tonight. I, I oh, really so sad. Is, if only we like, could hear his voice. Well, it's it's right up his alley. This this stuff. Um, thanks, boys, very much. Very interesting stuff. Opera box score is what you're listening to. Hey, just how do you design a costume for a pirate? That's up next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's only on WNUR. 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Welcome back. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. Let us know what you want to say about what we're talking about. George Cedarquist here with Matt Cummings. That is me. And... With Weston Williams. Or Wilson Westings, if you're, if you're using my name for him now, apparently. Uh, we need ne- to get each other's names straight so for the next show. Next month, Chicago's acclaimed Baroque opera troupe, the Haymarket Opera Company, presents Antonio Cesti's Lorontea, a mid-17th century Venetian gem filled with a cast of queens, pirates, and courtesans. Haymarket has become a critical darling for its highly detailed productions, using period instruments and historically informed vocal practices and staging conventions, at the heart of which are Mary and Bari's magnificent costumes. Creative consultant Oliver Camacho sat down with her to give us an insight into her craft. I'm very excited to welcome Miriam Bari to Opera Box Score. Uh, Miriam is in the middle of uh, creating costumes for Lorontea, which is the next Haymarket Opera show, which goes up in May. It's coming up soon or June? Uh, it's June, so the dates are June 2nd, 3rd, and 5th. And that's here in the Studebaker Theater in downtown Chicago. Yes, exactly. So um, Lorontea, which is by Chesty, yes. will be your... 13th or your 12th show for I think your 12th. That's a good question. I think yeah. I think it's the number 12, yes. Yeah. Your 12th show for Haymarket Opera. And if you ever read uh, reviews for Haymarket Opera, uh, you find that more often than not the costumes are always mentioned as being a big part of what Haymarket does. And I I feel that way. 
Um, can you tell us how you came to specialize in uh, historical costumes? Uh, yes, so actually it was a little bit of a coincidence. I arrived in Chicago in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, here Market Opera Company was just opening, and they were looking for someone uh, to create uh, Baroque costumes. And uh, at that time, um, Ellen Hargis was the stage director, mm-hmm. and she, after the show, she presented me to the people of uh, Boston Only Music Festival. Okay. And there I met Anna Watkins, who is their costume designer, and uh, Gilbert Blain, the stage director. And I worked also so with them, but also with Gilbert Blain in in, uh, in France. And all those shows were uh, had um, historical costumes, yes. and specifically uh, Baroque costumes. So what I'm saying, Baroque, it's, it's actually very large, is the uh, 17th and 18th century. Yes. So, but how did you come to specialize in this type of work? Like, your background was, I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, my background is completely different. So, I came in the U.S. with a Ph.D. in science. What? <laughs> yes. Oh, I thought you knew that. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. So, I have a Ph.D. in biology, and I So, arrived. you're Dr. Bari. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you yeah. can call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I arrived with, uh, with uh, this diploma in the U.S. I was thinking of uh, finding a postdoc, but... Um, well, I was not uh, very satisfied with my uh, science background. I always thought uh, that I would do uh, something artistic. And when I was a student in biology, I was always drawing. I was also dancing with a dance company, and I was uh, helping making the costumes. Okay. And since I'm a kid, I'm drawing, and uh, I always loved also history. So, of course, I, I love also fashion, and I always had an eye for... Um, historical costumes. Yeah. So when my first occasion was to design costumes for um, Baroque uh, opera, I was extremely happy. So can you talk about how you begin to prepare designs, like what source materials yeah. are you referring to, or you know, what if there's no source material, like how do you create a strategy for your designs? Uh, so for me, when I'm working on an opera, the very, very first thing is to uh, read the libretto, to mm-hmm. analyze the libretto, because actually you can find a lot of clues in mm-hmm. them. Uh, for instance, you will have a character uh, who will say, uh, please, can you give me my purple uh, coat with the golden <laughs> trim? So that's very important, and especially because now you have the subtitles, yeah. and so people can follow exactly what's going yeah. on. Even if it's Italian, they know that this character should have um, yeah. a purple yeah. coat. So, you know, you have a lot of clues like that in the libretto. Sometimes you have none or very, or very few. But sometimes you have a lot. So that's really the first part. Or sometimes you have a character who is in love with uh, with a lady who has, you know, golden hair. So, you know, you have uh, to have a, a blonde wig for yeah. this character, etc. Uh, so that's the very, very first uh, step is collecting clues. After, um, in general, what I do is I open a fashion book that is um, that is focusing on the right decade. Mm-hmm. Um, I so this book has references for... All the decades of the Baroque era? Yes. Okay. Yes, for instance, I mean, sometimes I look at a book that is more general. It d- depends. I, I, in general, open several books. It's not only one yeah. book. Um, it's like a Pantone book. It's like, okay, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I cross the references. Yeah. What I do next also is looking at the paintings uh, of, the, of the right period, uh, especially if it's an opera with a lot of uh, mythology yeah. um, in it. That's very important to look at how it was depicted at that time. 
Um, and also, most importantly, I think, is that I'm, I try to find uh, costume sketches of the costume designer of that time. Okay. Because actually we have uh, quite a lot of them, uh, a lot of uh, French uh, costume designer sketches were uh, very well conserved. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find that in uh, specialized books, and you can find um, also a lot of them online. If you go to uh, archives, uh, museums, archives, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of things are online. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so this is how, how I do that. <laughs> and I huh. collect the maximum of clues, and when I have everything, so that can take me several days. And I go through really, like, a lot, a lot, a lot of images. And uh, when I collect everything I need, then I begin to think about the design, Um Sometimes I'm very lucky. I'm finding I find exactly, you know, uh, the depiction of a character that is already in the opera, and sometimes not at all. Mm-hmm. So I have to compose a new a new character, a new design. So besides the libretto, mm-hmm. and you probably listen to the music, I yes. suspect. Yes. What other aspects uh, of the production can influence the design and help you like understand the character and flesh out the character? What is very important is to know about the, um, the stage director vision. Okay. That's very important because you know he he might have a different. I mean, when you read the libretto, uh, ideas are already coming in your mind. Mm-hmm. The stage director is doing the same on his side, and sometimes the ideas uh, can be different. So it's good to be sure that uh, that what you're doing is in the same. Uh, I mean, you're on, on the same uh, way. Uh, wavelength. So yes, I would say the stage director vision, also the budget uh, is important because oh, yeah. you know you the budget. yeah <laughs> the budget is very very important. You know if you have like a chorus of twenty people, you have to make sure that you don't design something crazy and that you know it's not possible to to do. And uh, I think it's also very important like to 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 uh, think about quality more than uh, quantity. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, maybe something I can add. Uh, also in the library, you can have a sense of if there is any uh, quick uh, costume changes. Oh, yeah. Because that helps also if you have like... Oh, like free, in Callisto, free min- like yeah. where she changes into a bear. Or something. Yeah. So if you have like three minutes or ten seconds, sometimes yeah. like uh, it's supposed to be a different character in really like literally ten seconds <laughs> of music. Um, so sometimes I discuss with the, with the conductor mm-hmm. uh, or the artistic director and say, okay, can we add like a few, a, f- a bit more music there because we, it would be great to have 20 seconds uh, more uh, to have time to change this person. Um, so you're working right now on Lorontea. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about some of the characters and maybe some things for us to look for and what you're thinking about? when? Yes. Um, so I don't want to say too much. I think you should uh, come to see the show. <laughs> yes. And also I want to say with Hair Market uh, Opera Company, we add a lot of content in our programs. Yeah. But I, I can say that uh, the costume will be a mix of European costume and uh, Oriental costumes mm. because the story is taking place uh, in Egypt. Lorontea was composed in uh, 1656, and a few years ago we had uh, Calisto, which is another uh, Italian opera yeah. from is 1651. Yes, well? okay. exactly. And something else too, I think that is great with um, Hair Market Opera Company is that at the end the singers are coming to the lobby, so you can see them for close, and you can see the costume for very close. That's a very nice touch. I like yes. that part. Um, so, are there some examples of designers now that you are in this field that you really love their work and maybe we can all look at their work on a movie or on television? Yes, I... 
One of the costume designers I like very much is Sandy Powell. She worked on a lot of movies that are, that are one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. Favorite movies like uh, Interview with a Vampire mm. or uh, Shakespeare in Love, uh, Gangs of New York. She, she is doing quite a lot also of historical, um, she's working on historical movies. Um, some, yeah, so I, I think you want to know um, if some of them are what were very influential. Yeah. It's like we all listen, like yeah. as a singer, I listen to singers, you know, and I don't know what that's like for you. Like you see a design, you're like, oh, I want to be like that person. You know? Yeah, I think I think the most influential are when, when, when the when they're uh, pioneers. Okay. So like maybe the first thing I'm thinking of is uh, the costume designer of uh, Star Wars. Okay. You know, I think he, he, he decided of the style for... Yeah, uh, he invented for, it all. Yeah, exactly. But what for was he influenced after. by? Like samurais or... I mean, like... Oh, the, I don't... I don't we know exactly that the Jedis have, have samurai yeah. influence, yeah, you know. Yeah, but like right. the Stormtroopers is such an iconic look, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I don't know really exactly, yeah. but I know like his influence, his influence was, uh, was extremely important. Mm-hmm. And for... To take like a, a more recent uh, example, I think the costume designer of uh, Black Panther will be very oh a big, God, big, big so influence gorgeous. for the decades yeah. to come. So, there are a lot of singers who listen to this radio show. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody who now works a lot backstage and you work as a dresser, I'm sure, like for during the performances, are there some things that you would like to tell us in general, like how to behave? What, to what, singers? Yeah, um, yeah. Or well, to the actors, to the dancers, yes, all of us, you know? Yes. Uh, well, for dancers, I would say come to the come to your fitting with underwear. Okay. <laughs> because sometimes they're coming right from, right from, um, um, dance rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. dance rehearsal, yeah. and they forget, like, oops, I don't have any underwear. <laughs> That's for dancers, um, but like <laughs> in general, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I was very lucky, but like in general, I have no really like no problems with uh, with performers. I would say um, trust the costume designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are here to make you look good, but we are not here to make you look good uh, as it will be like your uh, wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we are here to make you look good according to your character. So yeah. it can be a bit different of what you think you you look good in. Yeah. Uh, for historical costume, I think um, because not everybody is uh, educated about historical costume, I think it's it's uh, they trust uh, me pretty easily. But I completely see that for um, something with contemporary costume, because they're used to see them uh, themselves in a certain specific style, it can be a bit difficult to um, to uh, switch to another style, which is not one. Uh, which is not a style that they are comfortable in. And uh, my advice would be, uh, yes, trust the costume designer and and forget about your complex. Yeah. <laughs> you will look gorgeous anyway. Sometimes what I do, it's, it's rare, but I, I do it sometimes and I love doing that, is I do, I wear costume myself and I do, I'm a mute character, for instance, for a okay. show. And um, and I love doing that because also it's a way for me to remember how it is to be on stage with all the lights and all yeah. the people looking at you and being in a costume and remembering everything. Yeah. And uh, you know when you never do that, you completely forget how it is yeah. to be in a costume, even though you are working with costumes every day. No, I think that's a, a good lesson for everybody. You know, the conductor should get up there <laughs> and <laughs> yes. see what it's like, you know. Yes. <laughs> Can you talk about... Uh, how people 
have to learn how to move in historical costumes. Mm-hmm. Yes, so we have uh, we add uh, bones in the in the costumes. Bones? So, yes, bones. boning. Yes, boning. Sorry, okay. yeah. <laughs> boning in the so we add boning in the costumes um, and we tight the corset. So yeah. you know when they when the singers are in the costume, they can already notice a difference. Yeah. And also the sleeves, you cannot do uh, dramatic uh, movements with yeah. the you c- you cannot like lift your um, arms above your head. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You cannot do that too much of that type of movement. So that changed a lot. And uh, I think the singers are very happy mm-hmm. when they can rehearse with the costume because that changed a lot uh, how they can move. So before uh, being with your, how to say that, your um, arms along your body yeah. was uh, w- was not elegant at all. You yeah. have like to form like a triangle. Yeah, uh, in with, your elbow, yeah. Yeah, in your elbow. Um, and actually, when you when you look at the cut of the costume out of, uh, of that time, mm-hmm. um, the sleeves are not cut like they are cut today. Mm-hmm. They're not cut like in a straight line. They are cut in a curve. Hmm. So that means like your arm, your elbow was always uh, bent yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah there's so always some angle. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and if, you have, if you have your arm completely just straight uh, along your body, uh, the, the sea will do something uh, not, very, not very nice. So yeah. it was, yes. And um, also all those uh, people, noble people at that time, they were taking also um, dance uh, lessons. And, and uh, it was very common that the, prof- the, the teacher of dance and the, the I don't know how to say that, the... Uh, uh, professor de maintien in French, I would say, a behavior posture okay. teacher <laughs> okay. uh, was the same as the dance teacher. So okay. that's why also you see a lot of portraits, uh, the way people were um, were posing. Yeah. Posing, yeah. yes, it was very similar to dance uh, positions. What are some future projects that you are uh, working on after Haymarket? So after Haymarket, I'm working on the next Haymarket, which is for <laughs> for September, which is uh, Handel's uh, Cerce. Oh, wow. And uh, what else? So after that, uh, I will work with the Newberry Concert. We are doing uh, two revivals, one of uh, Eloise and Abelard, so it will be more uh, medieval costumes, and, uh, and also Jigs, mm-hmm. uh, which is a show we presented two years ago, and it's all in uh, Shakespearean uh, costumes. Nice. And... After that, I will join the um, Boston Early Music Festival for um, Alcina. Alcina? Yes. That's the opera next, next it's, year? It's the Chamber Opera okay. in November. Oh, wow. And the big uh, opera for the, for the festival is or, uh, Orlando. But it's not Orlando Furioso. It's Orlando uh, Generoso, uh, composed by uh, Stefani. Stefani. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, so we have uh, Laurentia to look forward to in June and Cersei in the fall in yes. Boston. Um, Marion Bari, thank you so much. We should. How will people be able to look at your work if they want to see it now? Oh, yes, they can, uh, they can go on my website, which is uh, marionbari.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Thank you so much. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to, all right? Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's George Cedarquist with Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. I have to admit, going into the lobby in costume after the show breaks all the rules that I grew up with in the theater. It was just a thing. 
after the show, you got out of costume, got out of makeup, and then you went to see your family and friends and all that. That Haymarket sends its actors into the lobby in costume is utterly brilliant. Dude, Instagram for days. It's so smart. So intri- so much intricate work that you can't see from this from the audience necessarily but absolutely really speaks up close especially especially with period costumes right. you know you you you, you want to get a really good close look that you can't always get from the third balcony where i'm always sitting you know uh, absolutely right yeah I, I, now the thing about not wearing underwear <laughs> i can confirm that i have never done this but in costume fittings i've gotten specific lines all singers, please make sure you bring or wear underwear Who's to your costume. Free balling. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Hope, free balling in the period costume. Hopefully, the reminders work, but they do send them out. I, I don't know if you've had to send them out for your shows, but no. I have gotten them. No, no. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't go to the fittings. I don't deal with any of that. I just. I don't want to. Whenever I'm in a show, I'm. They always just like find the largest piece of costume in their warehouse and throw it at me. So. <laughs> <Shmata. yeah. laughs> You'll be playing a tree in this every one every time. Again, every time. It's time for Weston's fitting. <laughs> Draw please, the blinds. Please bring underwear. <laughs> Yeah, Weston, please. That's actually a rule for this radio show, too. Yes. Oh, shoot. Well, I guess I'll have to see you next week because I'm... That's why Toby's not here tonight. (laughs) Who is the winner of the 2018 Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions last week? That's next on America's Talk radio show about opera. Keep it locked on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in less than two minutes. This year's winners of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions are soprano Jessica Fasselt, soprano and Northwestern grad Madison Leonard, mezzo-soprano Ashley Dixon, mezzo-soprano Hongni Wu, and tenor Carlos Enrique Santelli. The Italian conductor Gianandrea Nozeda, whose American career has taken off in recent years with his appointment as music director of the National Symphony Orchestra in D.C. and also with high-profile performances at the Met, has announced last Thursday that he was leaving the Teatro Reggio Torino. This is the Italian opera house that he has helped to restore to prominence over the past decade. Soprano Nadine Sierra has been named winner of the Met's 13th Annual Beverly Sills Artist Award, carries a 
$50,000 prize, and it's given annually to the extraordinarily gifted singer between 25 and 40 who's already appeared in a future solo role at the Met. The website Slip Disc is reporting that the 24-7 Met Opera radio channel on the Sirius XM network has removed all recordings conducted by James Levine. Those operas have been replaced with full-length broadcasts from the 30s, 40s, and especially the 50s. Exit stage right French-Canadian mezzo-soprano Huguette Torrego. She died at the age of 79. Her operatic debut was in 1964 as Mercedes in Bizet's Carmen, conducted by Zubin Mehta. That same year, Turungo won the council auditions, actually, singing Carabino in Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro, with Richard Bonning conducting and thus beginning a long relationship as a frequent recording partner with, of course, soprano Joan Sutherland. And on this day, April 30th, it's the birthday of composer and conductor Franz Lehar, in 1870. That is your two-minute drill. This is America's talk radio show about opera with George Cedarquest, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Sports on WNUR 847-866-9687 is our number in the studio. Give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score, where we're really going to try and do a push on Twitter and just get better at it. That's, how, that's all <laughs> that's I can our say. Resolution. Uh, that's our summer resolution. Matt Cummings, the Munkas, the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. Break it down for us. What's the structure? How do we get to the finals? So, boom, level one, you have Ooh. districts. Mm. There are 42 districts across the country. Just like Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and if you place high enough in the district, you'll move on to the region, and there are 12 regions. Uh, the winners from the regions will go on to the semifinals, which are in New York City, and then from that, we have the 10 or so people who competed in the finals that were on Sunday night, and of those and of those 10, they've picked five to win. I think they have a little bit of leeway with how many people win every year, generally around five. How far have you gotten? I've actually never done them. Okay. Yeah. He would have won. But. First place. Uh, no I've, competition. I've basically won them. <laughs> you, you basically won them. Is there yeah. anyone else that in, in our circle of the show that we might know? I'm just trying to figure out, apart from the, the people who win it, how, how far it's possible to get. Like Tobias, has he ever done it? I, I, you know, I don't know if he has. I, a lot of time, I have lots of friends who are my peers who have either moved on to regions or gotten encouragement awards where they give you a little bit of money so you can afford to keep studying and paying for other auditions. Mm. Uh, but typically, the it, it really depends on where you're singing your first round, how good of a chance you have on moving on, in addition to, you know, how good your audition is, how, who happens to turn up that day, wh- whether or not the judges like you that day. There are going to be some markets where it's just more competitive. Like, right. I'm sure doing the your district audition in New York City is a nightmare. <laughs> everyone <laughs> everyone lives there. Uh, everyone in the world yeah. lives in New York. Philly's a big one. Cincinnati's a big one with mm-hmm. CCM there. So you don't have to be connected. You can audition in any... You can. And, a lo- and you can audition in any district. And so there are a lot of people who will travel to sing in a district that isn't where they necessarily live. That is. I'm yeah. kind of appalled by that. <laughs> you think that they'd have some sort of, you know, anti-carpet bagging rule against that, but I don't know how you'd enforce it exactly. The, like you're 
the other driver's thing that, license? I, but the other thing that's important about it is a lot of what determines when, when you could do them is also what date they are because the districts don't happen all at the same time. So oh. what's good about that is maybe okay. you have a gig on the same day as the Chicago auditions. You're not counted out. You right. could drive up to Wisconsin and sing in theirs or go to go back home and visit your parents in Minneapolis or North Dakota or San Francisco and and still get a chance to sing it. So but you know, so there's pluses and minuses, but when it comes down to any sort of competition that has a judging panel there is going to be politics involved. And Absolutely. Because there's no accounting for taste. Do, do you feel like people run the table in these sorts of events? It, it seems like every couple of years, with, with the, there are some people who are just get fast-tracked, and, they are, and the consensus is that they are someone to watch. And I think that that... I find it hard to believe that that wouldn't play, uh, play a role in terms of judging. With this person is... Is going somewhere, so we should put we should throw our name behind them because then we benefit. You know, there's a little bit of I'll scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. (laughs) Man, Uh, man, yeah. And I think it also means that sometimes there are people who win because their consensus picks because they're not polarizing. They're maybe very good, but there might be other people who. you know, are a little bit raw or and perhaps more exciting, but also polarizing. So there are some people who will be like, absolutely, no, that per- that that guy will not win. This was Oliver's take. He said that he was dismayed that of the nine singers who were in the final, seven were white women, one was an Asian woman, and one dude. And that's not to take anything away from these finalists. He understands how hard it is to compete on this level. But Oliver says the powers that be need to look at this result and evaluate if the current system is working and if there is no latent bias in the judging. Matt, you were just talking about bias. What's your opinion on this crop of finalists and was there some sort of bias in that? There, I am sure that no one means to be biased, but there's institutional bias, whether or right. not they want to or not. In that, you know, by the time you make it to the Met Council auditions, you have had a lot of, you've had a good amount of success in order because you've had the training, you've had people who supported you, you've had people who picked you, and there are just so many steps where it's possible for bias to enter that. To me, there's no way that it's not there. It's hard to believe that there was only one guy yeah. that was of the standard that to make it to the finals uh, this year. Uh, of course. And okay. the it, there, there's just too many variables to, to really be able to say anything for sure. And to me, that kind of... They, they, don't, they don't necessarily mean that these people are going to be stars and it doesn't mean anything about the people who didn't win other than they weren't chosen by that panel to win right like any audition yeah it's like how your standardized test scores tell you how well you can take a standardized test exactly (laughs) exactly yeah uh allegedly all the james levine recordings have been wiped off of the Met Opera Radio Channel on Sirius XM. Weston, you have Sirius XM? Uh, I, um, I, I used to have it. In I know car? a little bit of No, not, not anymore. But I do know a little bit about it, and I have some experience with what their programming was like. And I have to say, if this is true, uh, this could be a very significant change for the Mets station. Um, now... Uh, Qualifier. This is from um, uh, Slip Disc. Uh, they might not be in 
we don't know what sources they're working with. They don't really name any sources. They just kind of we haven't found another we, we source ha- that confirms it. Right. Yeah. The I did go on the SiriusXM site and I looked at the uh, what the Met. Uh, station was playing over the next week, and there were no Levine conducted operas on the list, which is suspicious because when I did have Sirius XM, you'd have one very frequently all the time because, you know, he's been there for decades and decades and decades. And he was the highest profile conductor for most of those decades. Exactly. So he got all the broadcasts. Exactly. So there might be something to it. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if they were at least cutting down the amount of Levine. Or in, waiting for it to die down. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've been going back and forth on this story ever since I read it. And again, we don't know how accurate this is. All right. So... A monster made some brilliant art. Does that mean we should not listen to that art? Well, it sounds like the Wagner thing all over again. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's like when you talk about the thing and like in two seconds it gets to Hitler. It's the same right. thing in Opera Land yeah. when you talk and it's like, well, you know Wagner. Well, you know, if he hadn't been such a jerk, it wouldn't be such an easy example. That's yeah. true. Well, Mozart was a jerk too. <laughs> yeah. I do know? think the Met is in a kind of an, a strange position with this one because uh, the Met is – one of the most well-recorded, probably the most well-recorded opera house in terms of live performances in history. Agree. So they have a lot of, uh, you know, recordings going all the way back to the very inception of radio broadcasts uh, with some really good casts, really good singers. Um, the thing is, if you listen to a lot of those really early recordings, the Mets Orchestra was not really great until Levine came in and kind of kicked them into gear a little mm-hmm. bit. So you are looking at potentially a drop in quality um, on a more objective level than just this guy was a good conductor if they are getting rid of him, uh, losing him from the rotation. Um, Now, of course, you know, there are many post-Levine uh, conductors uh, that that were that you know worked with a much better orchestra uh, after that happened but it is a pretty it's a pretty big hole for them in particular if they are yeah. trying to kind of phase it out and it's a lot of singers whose recordings you wouldn't get to hear anymore I personally Absolutely. don't care at all about listening to Levine's work as as the conductor of of leading the opera, I know how important it is. I know that he's really that he's the guiding force between a lot of what behind a lot of what we're hearing. But there are singers that I truly love, whose artistry I really respect, who made lots of recordings with Levine, and I still want to listen to those recordings. Even mm-hmm. e- and it's a hard place to be in because you don't want to be implicit in. Right, but it's it's so difficult because in the United States, Levine's approach to opera kind of defined the 70s and 80s, which are two big decades for opera. Huge. Uh, it, massive. You know, his casts that he put together, even if they're in, recorded by uh, another another company with a different conductor, he was still the one who put them together. He, 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 he brought people up out of kind of nowhere, um, these big names, and it's... It's, it is a difficult thing because even if this story isn't true, there is part of me that feels like, well, maybe this is what they should be doing in light of what's been going on. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole legal question because now, you know, Levine and the Met are not 
I mean, there it's lawyers on both sides. Right. There, there hasn't been direct contact since all of this started to go down. Well, and when you tie it back to what we we're talking about at the top of the show, the recording quality, those recordings that they would allegedly play are from 30s, 40s, 50s. Right. Great singers, as Matt says. The quality of the recording, Matt, maybe not so Little much. hissy. John Andrea Nozera is on the move. He's leaving the... Uh, Teatro Reggio in Torino. Are we surprised that this is happening, Matt? Fill us I, in. What's, I mean, it seems the like the Teatro the Teatro Reggio was uh, was kind of surprised in that he the the, <laughs> the outgoing director says that he didn't talk to them. He just released a press statement and. I don't know. To me, I'm I'm getting a little frustrated with how many stories there are that are just symptoms of this cult of genius that that we've allowed ourselves to get to. I think it's really a similar situation that led to the Levine thing is that these people who are towering figures in the arts think they can get away with anything. Right. Nozeta would argue that because the theater recently canceled a major tour of the U.S., including Carnegie Hall, that he didn't he didn't like that sign, and then so he decided that that it was time to go. At the same time, they just uh, hired a new intendant or a new director of the theater, and traditionally, it seems that that also signifies the hiring of a new general music director as well. So. It does, or at least that he was asked to reapply for his job. Yeah, that, that's I'm what it feels sure like to me. <laughs> ruffled some feathers when you get to that level, and he was he was insulted. Yeah, by that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll watch this space. Time to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Store. Great hanging out with you boys tonight. Thanks so much so uh, nice to hang our out with you too. listeners as well for being with you guys us. Are for okay. Opera Box Score. Time for a good call, bad call. Matt, what do you got on behalf of Oliver? I do, I do. I have words from Oliver Camacho, which is to don't forget to check out Rhymes with Opera with Opera's world premiere of Rumpelstiltskin, opening May 11th at 124 Bank Street Theater in New York City. The opera was composed by Ruby Fulton and George Lamb and has a libretto by friend of the show, John Klum. Hey! Rhymes with Opera. That's a great handle for an opera company. Uh, I had a lot of Cendrillon this week. On Saturday so afternoon, much. I was listening to the Met broadcast with Joyce... Uh, D. Donato trying to the figure out the girl next door. The girl next door. I was I was listening. I didn't know what show it was. It was in the background um, from my neighbors actually, and I was like, "What opera is this?" And I was guessing and guessing, and finally I got it. And then my daughter and I went to see Cendrillon at North Park University. Uh, they were performing actually the Athenaeum Theater, and um, we did leave at intermission. We figured we would quit while we were ahead. Uh, I spent most of the first hour with my daughter being like, when is Cinderella going to show up? Where is Cinderella? I don't know that opera that well because it really doesn't hasn't been done much. Yeah, she doesn't. Cinderella doesn't come on until like the third that scene. That might be why it's not done so, much. Uh, there's the, you can only um, placate a child with goldfish crackers for <laughs> so long. Yeah. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at W. When you are is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V O X E R S H O R T S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. 
On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with Michelle Wolf. If you see her, give her a pat on the back from me. We're back on Monday, May 7 at 9 p.m. Central with more opera news and hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment. <laughs>